Matter of Spirit is the quarterly justice journal of the Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center. This article appeared in the winter 2021 issue on economic justice. A systemic analysis of our economic system by Manakshi Rishi, PhD, and Jonathan Mellon. Manakshi Rishi, PhD, is a professor of economics at the Albers School of Business and Economics at Seattle University. Dr. Rishi is a member of the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession and the Executive Director of the Association of Indian Economic and Financial Studies. Jonathan Mellon studies management in the Albers School of Business and Economics at Seattle University. He is a research assistant for the Economics Department and the senior music editor at KXSU, SU's student-run radio station. An economic system is a scheme of production, resource allocation, and distribution of goods and services within a country. While much has been written about the structural inequities that characterize the U.S. economic system, COVID-19 has visually laid bare the deep cracks in the economic foundations of this country. Even prior to the pandemic, black net worth was one-tenth of white wealth, and the so-called best job market in U.S. economic history was characterized by a black and Latinx unemployment rate that was twice that of the white rate. Among the employed, black workers face large pay disparities relative to their white counterparts. The intersection of race and gender imposes a dual wage penalty on black women. In 2019, black women were paid 33.7% less than their white male counterparts, which was a much larger gap than that faced by either white women or black men. As is now known by all, essential and frontline workers are disproportionately black and brown. We also now know that a majority of them neither have access to health care nor do they possess retirement accounts. Most importantly, these workers don't have sick days. Since the killing of George Floyd in May, we are also becoming aware of the disproportionate impact on black and brown bodies. Deep racial injustices and economic disparities that limit opportunities for so many in our economy are now front and center and demand our attention. Doing nothing has a cost as such inequities can engender higher rates of health and social problems, lower population-wide satisfaction, and an even lower level of economic growth. In other words, systemic racism acts like a yoke that will drag down the U.S. economy. Main Street USA is in a much different place than Wall Street USA, as the soaring stock market reminds us. While the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ continue to shatter records and post gains. The Dow Jones is at an all-time high of 30,045.84 and closed out its best month since 1987. Many have remarked on the startling disconnect between surging lines at food bank sites and the surging rally of the U.S. stock market. What is going on? For starters, it would help to understand that the stock market is not the economy. In fact, only 10% of Americans own nearly 87% of the stock market, which are also far more global than the typical American firm. 
approximately 40% of the revenues of S&P 500 companies come from abroad. The main reason that the stock market is rising, even as 12 million Americans grapple with the loss of unemployment benefits, is that we are living in a K-shaped economy where industries like technology, retail, and software services are generating profits, whereas travel, entertainment, hospitality, and food service industries continue to struggle. The low interest rate regime instituted by the Federal Reserve since March has sent people with disposable income scurrying into selective stocks or into the housing market, driving their prices up and generating rallies. It is worth noting that stock and home ownership is exclusive to the richer segments of the population who are least likely to feel the pain of an economic downturn. On balance, it appears as though the owners of financial and real estate capital, that is stocks and homes, are gaining at the expense of most low-wage workers who do not have access to a market portfolio or the ability to purchase a home despite record low interest rates. Of course, this discrepancy between the haves and have-nots is only amplified when one considers that the U.S. tax code provides several significant tax breaks to income from capital gain, that is wealth, that income from labor or work does not enjoy. Capital gains income is taxed at lower rates than income from work, at a rate of 23.8% instead of 40.8% counting federal Medicare taxes. In addition, if the wealth owner holds onto the asset until death, any increase in value will never be subject to tax. These and related tax preferences enable households that already have substantial wealth, including fortunes accumulated across generations, to build still more wealth while others can never catch up. The resultant wealth gap widens the disparities and works as a barrier to upward mobility for many families. Getting rid of these special tax preferences may be a first step to leveling this gap. Another possibility is to strengthen the earned income tax credit that subsidizes low-income working families. The credit equals a fixed percentage of earnings from the first dollars of earnings until the credit reaches its maximum. At present, the earned income tax credit does not fully support childless workers. Hence, one proposal is to expand the purview of the earned income tax credit to ensure that even if the market doesn't pay adequate wages, the take-home pay of low-income individuals make sure that they don't live in poverty. Education has historically been considered a great equalizer, capable of lifting less advantaged groups out of poverty. But the top 40% of the population spends, on average, five times as much money on their children's education as those in the bottom 60% of the population. Additionally, only 40% of black students get a degree, as compared to 64% of white students. Increasing access to wealth can improve access to education and to economic opportunities, particularly for Black and Latinx families. Policymakers should consider family wealth, not just income, in developing policies and programs to improve socioeconomic mobility. If the U.S. economic system deprives individuals of having equal access to opportunity, then it is denying these individuals the ability to fully participate in the economy. The opportunity costs of operating at less than full steam are significant. 
smaller workforce growth, slower productivity growth, and an eventual erosion in our standards of living. An inclusive economy is a productive economy. So how can we reimagine our economy? We can start by redefining capitalism as more than an economic system and visualize it as an ecosystem that includes the interests of its various stakeholders, including the environment. Here are three concrete policy suggestions. Number one, consider a universal basic income policy. Such a policy was proposed by Andrew Yang in his run for the Democratic Party presidential nomination. The policy was based on a guaranteed income of $1,000 a month for every American adult, regardless of financial circumstances. Radical as it may sound, such a policy is fast gaining favor with many. More recently, universal basic income has been promoted by tech leaders who believe that technology will replace many American jobs, leading to social unrest. Some form of universal basic income that prioritizes those marginalized and vulnerable groups who experience exclusion and discrimination on a daily basis would act not only as a form of reparation, but could be a first step of many in attempting to bridge the mile-wide abyss that is racial and economic inequality in the U.S. In May 2020, more than a dozen cities, including Atlanta, Los Angeles, Newark, and St. Paul, along with the Economic Security Project, launched Mayors for Guaranteed Income, a network of mayors experimenting with universal basic income-like schemes. Number two, student debt solutions. 45 million Americans are indebted to the federal government to the tune of $1.5 trillion, plus another $130 billion more to private lenders. The average student debt amount is $37,000, and despite making up more than half of the student population, women own two-thirds of the total debt. Approximately 10% of the borrowers are in default. As with the rest of the economy, racial disparities characterize the student debt crisis, as black students are more likely to take out larger loans and then have far more trouble repaying these loans. Paradoxically, education can widen income gaps by race and contribute to the ongoing persistence of racial wealth inequity within our society. Among the solutions, researchers have called for policies that address employment discrimination and occupational segregation and increased funding to historically black colleges and universities. Debt forgiveness may be another avenue that is worth considering. Researchers have urged the Biden administration to unilaterally cancel the student debt of those whose colleges have closed and of those who have been defrauded by their institutions. Number three. Dismantle the structures of systemic economic racism. Ultimately, closing the wage, housing, education, business investment, and racial gaps can help narrow the wealth gap, which is significant for facilitating homeownership, business, and job creation, as well as, as establishing a pipeline for intergenerational wealth accumulation. A Citigroup study by Dana Person and Catherine Mann estimates that we have lost $16 trillion of gross domestic product since 2000 due to racial discrimination, specifically in wages, education, housing, and investment. The authors of the study go on to say that if we close these structural gaps today, 
then we could add $5 trillion of additional gross domestic product over the next five years, thus underscoring the point that racial fairness generates economic benefits while discrimination has real economic costs. As a nation, we also have a moral obligation to end unjust and destructive practices in all segments of society. The history of our nation is rife with examples of systemic racism. Slavery, federal law, consider the three-fifths compromise our founding fathers established to determine federal representation, sanctioned intimidation during Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws in southern states, redlining by bankers and brokers, segregation, voter suppression, and racial profiling in policing. By shining a spotlight on the inequities in our economic system, COVID-19 has also illuminated the best way forward and allows us to reimagine the economic system. This is a unique opportunity to build a more humane and more resilient economy. We must make the best of this moment in history.